Amen. Uh, be thou my vision, that God would be our vision, that everything that we do, we would see Christ, we would have our eyes fixed on him. And that's why we open the word of God together. That's why we stare at Christ together. We said when we began our study of the gospel of Mark that we wanted to do two things. We wanted to stare at Christ and be transformed by him. And we have the privilege yet again of doing that this morning. So if you have your copy of God's word, Mark chapter 6 is where we will be. Mark chapter 6. I don't know if you've ever been a part of one of those trivia nights where uh, you, with a group of people, you're answering all these different trivia questions. And the last question, that final question, it's usually some person or something, and, and they'll give you uh, progressing uh, clues. They'll give you clues that start off very general, very um, not specific, and then you slowly progress uh, to get much more specific, and then you go, oh, I know who that person is. And there's a series of three or four statements that are made, something like, you know, I used to be a senator for a state in the Northwest. And then you slowly progress, and it gets more specific and more specific, and then you go, oh, wait, I know, I know who it is. You, you know, ring the bell or whatever, and you're able to answer the trivia question. The Gospel of Mark has at its root a desire. Mark's goal is to show us Christ, but he's not giving us obscure clues the way that a trivia night might. He's made it very clear from the very beginning of his gospel. You remember he opened his gospel with John the Baptist showing us if, if we're going to make the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the king, the first question any good Jewish person would ask is where is his forerunner? And so Mark shows us John is that fulfillment of the forerunner. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of those two prophecies that Mark quotes for us. And then on and on it goes where no clue that Mark gives us is obscure. He shows us that Jesus has been coronated as king at his baptism. He defeats the devil in the wilderness. He calls citizens to himself to be a part of his kingdom when he calls the disciples. He overthrows the evil religious system and the traditions that the Pharisees had of good works getting you into heaven he commands sickness. He commands evil spirits. He commands and controls the weather. Clearly, this man is God. And that leads us all the way to Mark chapter 6, where we get to stare at the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels except for the resurrection. This is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels except for the resurrection. And that tells us there is something massively important about this miracle. There is something important about the facets of this miracle, about the features of this miracle. There's something important that we need to see and understand. A very familiar story, a very familiar account. But what is Mark putting it into his gospel for? What's the purpose that he gives this information, this miracle, this account? Why here? Why now? I believe it's yet again to highlight, to spotlight, and to show us the identity of Christ. And he's going to give us three fascinating aspects of the identity of Christ. There are things that are going on in this miracle, in this narrative, that are just mind-blowing. 
And so we get to stare at it together this morning. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Let's read together. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. There were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them. And they ran there together on foot from all the cities, and they got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves And he kept on giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. This is the very word of God. Let's ask his blessing on our time this morning. Father, we come before you and we long to hear your voice. We long for you to speak to us, to address us, even as you have already done through Psalm 23, through the scripture that's been in the songs that we've sung, and now through the reading of your word. And we would plead with you to write its eternal truths on our hearts, to to do a work in our midst that we would see and perceive, that we would have ears to hear, that we would see exactly what Mark is wanting to show us, the identity of Christ, who he is, and what he offers. But Father, we cannot gain any of those insights apart from your spirit. If we want to see, we need your Holy Spirit. We need your grace. None of us is intellectual enough to be able to understand and perceive apart from your spirit. Even the Apostle Paul says that no one says Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. So work in our midst. Continue that work that you did 2,000 years ago, of multiplying what little was given to you. We offer you this time. We offer you our intellect, our attention. We offer our affections. We offer our emotion. We offer it all to you, and it's, it's barely anything. And we say, God, please use it. Multiply it exponentially, supernaturally, miraculously. Do something in our midst this day that could only be explained by you doing the work. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. 
Amen. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. You remember, this is the conclusion of verse 7. If you go all the way back to verse 7, Jesus summoned the 12 disciples and began to send them out in pairs, that first missionary journey that he sent them out on. And then there was a a flashback, a scene in the middle of that, John the Baptist being beheaded. And then the bookend, remember we call that, you know, the Markin sandwich. We have this sandwich, we have the two bookends of Jesus sending out his disciples and then their return in verse 30. So we're back together. We're done with the flashback. We're back into the chronology. And verse 30, the disciples are gathering together and they're reporting everything that they had done. Imagine what they're reporting. You remember, Jesus said, go out with next to nothing, right? You're supposed to wait on the Lord to provide. You're supposed to go into the countryside, go into the villages, go into the towns and watch God work. Imagine the stories that they would have told. We were getting hungry. We we thought we weren't going to be able to have food that night. And then somebody showed up and said, hey, do you need a meal? I'll provide. We were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and people were getting saved. Imagine the stories and the triumphs of the gospel. And also imagine the sorrows, their own countrymen rejecting the message of the Messiah. They're reporting everything. And Jesus, so kindly in verse 31, says, you know what? You guys did a great job. You need to rest. You need to rest. Come away by yourselves, verse 31, to a secluded place and rest. So practical. You've been doing ministry. You've been busy doing ministry. Now get away and rest. So verse 32, they get into a boat. They get away by themselves. But verse 33, people see them and they know that They've been doing miracles. They know that the miracle worker is in their midst. Jesus is there in the boat. And so they follow them around the Sea of Galilee. They're going with them. They they go on ahead of them. Verse 33, they ran there together on foot from all the cities and they got there ahead of them. Luke tells us in his gospel, in his account of this miracle, that this is near Bethesda or Bethsaida. And Jesus, in ministering in Galilee, he's now in Bethsaida, and he's been ministering in the the region of Galilee for two years. And as we find him in this chapter, he's ending about two years of ministry, and he's going to enter into his last year and a half of ministry before he's going to die. Verse 34, he wants to be alone with his disciples, and he sees a crowd. And this is where it just gets good. If you wanted to be alone and you get alone by yourself, you get away to a secluded place and then there's this massive crowd that's clamoring for your attention, what is your emotional response to that? I'll tell you what mine is. I'll say, go away, (laughs) right? I want to be alone, but not Jesus. He's not frustrated. He's not angry. What does the text say? Verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion. That word is used nine times and it's only used to speak of Jesus in the gospels. Nine times in the gospels only used to speak of Jesus. 
He has compassion. It's a word that means a deep feeling in your bowels, so deep in your gut that you feel something that you have to do something as you see these people. The reason why he feels compassion, verse 34, is explicitly stated for us. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He's not angry at them. He's not frustrated by them. He feels sorry for them because they are sheep without a shepherd. And it is here where Mark gives us the first clue, one aspect of the identity of Jesus Christ. Number one, in this miracle, we are going to see that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd who cares for his sheep. Number one, Jesus is the compassionate shepherd who cares for his sheep. He says that they are like sheep without a shepherd. That is often used in the Old Testament to speak of Israel not having a leader. Numbers chapter 27 verse 17 uses this phrase, as does 1 Kings twenty-two seventeen, 17, Ezekiel 34, 5, Zechariah 10 verse 2, and a number of other places. This phrase is used to speak of Israel not having a godly leader. They are sheep wandering around without a shepherd. And that breaks the heart of God. Jesus feels compassion because he sees the the crowds and he knows they don't have a real king. They don't have a real leader. Just think about the contrast in this chapter alone. Who is their king, quote unquote? The governor in Israel, Antipas, Herod Antipas. Notice the stark contrast between the king that Herod is and the king that Jesus is. There's even two feasts, two banquets in this chapter, back to back. The first is with Antipas, the second is with Jesus. The first has all of the nobility, all of the people of power and prestige. The second just has all these commoners. The first is prepared by gourmet chefs. The second is by Jesus alone. The first ends with the death of John the Baptist and his blood flowing off a platter. And the second ends with Jesus' love and compassion flowing to the crowds. He knows they do not have a leader. And he feels compassion. And by the way, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us that he still feels that same compassion for you. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. He feels when we struggle. He doesn't view you as an interruption. He doesn't view you as an annoyance. He doesn't look at you and think, why can't you get your act together? He looks upon you with deep compassion. The crowd is being described as sheep without a shepherd, and so Jesus is being presented as that shepherd that they need who will provide for all of their needs so that they lack nothing. He had promised, God had promised that in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, verses 2 through 4. Ezekiel 34, verses 10 through 16. Jeremiah 3, verse 15. Isaiah 40, verse 11. God promised, I am going to take away the bad shepherds and give you good shepherds, and then I will care for you myself. And I wonder... If you caught the clue, Mark's going to give us a number of reasons why he's pointing to Jesus as the good shepherd. Here he says, they are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus then teaches them. He wants to shepherd them. But I wonder if you saw the clue. There's a clue that Mark inserted here to help us 
identify Jesus as the one fulfilling what we read earlier in Psalm 23. Did you see it in verse 40 or verse 39? Jesus commands them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. Green grass, that's not just a time marker that it's springtime. John tells us that it's the Passover season. That's not just a time marker. That's a reminder of the promise of the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He is shepherding his people. John 10, he is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep. He is the compassionate shepherd. And he teaches, verse 34, he teaches them. He teaches them many things. The most important thing that lost sheep need is a teacher to guide them. And so he teaches. And as he's teaching, verse 35, it gets late. His disciples come to him and they say, this place is desolate. My Bible says desolate. Some translations say this is a wilderness. We're in the wilderness. It's quite late. We're not around anything where we can just go to the towns. We can just... Uh, eat. We got to go. It's going to take time. So they say, send them away in the surrounding countrysides and villages. Let them buy something to eat. This had been a spontaneous gathering, so no one had planned ahead and brought food. Or if they were thinking about bringing food, apparently the dads were in charge of packing the lunches that day. It's a desolate, secluded wilderness. And in this wilderness, in this desolate location, far away from everything else, the extraordinary is going to happen. I don't want you to miss that. The extraordinary is going to happen while they are in a desolate place. For our God, the wilderness is where extraordinary things happen. We don't like being in the wilderness. I don't know if you are in the wilderness right now. You feel like there is no rest for your soul. You feel like you are parched and you want out. I would encourage you this morning. It is there in the wilderness where God shows himself faithful. And while Jesus didn't feed himself when he was in the wilderness with the devil... He is joyfully going to feed thousands. So his disciples say, we don't have a place to get food. We got to send them away. Verse 37, he answers and says to them, you give them something to eat. What is he doing here? What is he saying? Remember, they had just come from their missionary journey. They had just seen that God will provide for all their needs. There's a very real possibility that what Jesus is saying is, you feed them. With the same power that I gave you on your missionary journey, you can use that to feed them. That might be what he's saying. Or he might be highlighting their absolute, utter dependence upon God. That there's no way they can make this happen. He's wanting to highlight the impossibility of this situation to remind them of their inadequacy. I, just, I wonder how he says this. Verse 37, I wonder if there's a twinkle in his eye when he says, you give them something to eat. He wants to show them that they need him. 
these incredibly challenging and sometimes impossible commands of the Lord always force us to learn and depend totally on him. His call is always precisely to the level of our adequacy. He's always showing us, you can't do this on your own, but if you have me, you can do it. He's highlighting their limitations so that there can be no mistake as to where the power is going to come from. John Calvin says that Jesus is taking them to school in these moments to teach them a lesson. And so he says, you feed them. And they say, how? How? Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? 200 denarii, denarii is a day's wage. That's 200 days of working. That's about eight months of wages. The disciples are playing the role of Captain Obvious here to say there is no way that we can do that. We are in the wilderness. There's a huge group of people. And we're asking, where can we get food for all of these people? And here's clue number two as to the identity of Jesus. We've already seen that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd who cares for his sheep. But in these verses, what Mark is doing, and I believe the crowd would have felt this at this moment. I think the disciples would have known something's happening here. We're in the wilderness. There's a massive crowd. And we're looking going, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? That's a direct quotation from Numbers 11, verse 13. When Moses said, God, we're in the wilderness. There's this huge group of people. Where am I going to get enough food to feed these people? And Jesus says, I can do it. And this highlights the second aspect of Jesus' identity on display in the feeding of the 5,000. Number one, the feeding of the 5,000 shows us that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd who cares for his sheep. Number two, the feeding of the 5,000 points to the reality that Jesus is the true and better Moses who provides for his people. Jesus is the true and better Moses who provides for his people. Jesus is showing himself to be the second Moses, the true and better Moses. Again, there's a clue here, just like with the uh, compassionate shepherd sitting down on green grass. There's a clue here that should take us back to the Old Testament with Moses' leadership. It's in verse 40. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. That's what happened in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. Moses tells the people to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties and tens. He groups them in the same grouping that Jesus groups the people. They're in a desolate place, just like Moses in the wilderness. He orders them, Jesus orders them into groups, just like Moses had done. And then Jesus is going to give food supernaturally, just like Moses did. Moses gave manna, obviously it's the Lord doing it. When Moses was ending his ministry as leader of Israel, he says at the end of Deuteronomy that God will raise up the prophet. Many people thought it was Joshua. As Moses dies, Joshua becomes the leader. Here is the prophet that's sent to lead Israel into prosperity. And Joshua does a great job, but he doesn't finish the job. And so everyone says he must not be the prophet. Well, is it Samuel? He's doing a great job, but... We've got some problems here. Saul, definitely not the leader we want. David, oh, he's a great leader. He's a great king, and he has a lot of failures. Not the leader we want. Solomon, he's a great guy. A lot of wisdom, 
not the leader we want. We're constantly asking, who is that prophet? Where is that prophet that Moses promised? Where is that prophet? Who is that prophet? And here, Jesus is saying, I am that prophet. I am that prophet who has come to lead you. I am the shepherd to take care of you. I am the true and better Moses to lead you out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Verse 38, he asks them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. John is the only one who mentions that the little boy shows up with his um, little lunch pail. And they find out that they have five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, if you're like me, I think five loaves of bread, I think like a you know, big round piece of sourdough, five big old things of sourdough bread, and then two big fish. I don't know what kind of fish they are, but just two big fish. That's what I think of when I think of five loaves of bread and two fish. The Greek words here are very specific as to what these loaves and fish are. The word for loaf is not a loaf of bread the way we think of it. It's like a biscuit, it's like a cracker. It's a flat, dried up barley cake baked on a stone. So it's not a big thing of sourdough, it's a little cracker. And then the fish isn't just massive, you know, tuna or something like that. Um, all the gospel writers, except for John, just use the word fish, the Greek word ichthus. It's just a general word for fish. But John uses a very specific word for fish, which tells us it's a small salted pickled fish, like, a, like an anchovy, like a little tiny fish. So as if this miracle isn't awesome enough, it just got even more amazing in my mind because we went from big five sourdough bread loaves and huge tuna fish to five little biscuits, little tiny crackers, and two tiny anchovies. That's what Jesus is going to use. That's what he's going to use. He's going to work with that. And I think that there is something so profound in these verses. We tend to look at what we lack. Jesus is spotlighting what do you have. The disciples say, we don't have any food to feed all these people. And Jesus says, just tell me what you have. Give me what you can, no matter how small. Because you have no idea how God's going to multiply it. Imagine this boy. This boy shows up with this lunch, and the Lord is going to take the lunch and multiply it to feed thousands of people. I don't know if you're here this morning and you feel like, you know what, I want to serve the Lord. I want to follow him, I want to love him, I want to serve him, I want to minister in his name, but I don't have a lot to give. Maybe it's time. Maybe you look at your calendar and you say, I don't have a lot of time. Maybe it's energy, maybe it's health. Maybe it's relationships, maybe it's knowledge. And you look and you say, I'm not adequate enough. I don't have enough. This is all I have. I think Jesus would say this morning, Give me whatever you have and watch me multiply it. Don't look at what you lack. Look at what you have and give me whatever you have and let me multiply it. I love how Elizabeth Elliot said, if the only thing that you have to give to Jesus is a broken heart, then give that to him and watch him work a miracle. Just give him whatever you have. I feel this every Sunday. I do this every Sunday. 
I always think as I'm preparing to preach, as I'm praying in preparation to preach, as I'm preaching, I just think, you know, this sermon stinks. This sermon does not do justice to the glory of God in the scriptures. But God, use it. This is all I have. Use it. Multiply it. Do something with it. And I give it to him. And it is, it's shocking. It's supernatural to see what he does with it. Because people will come up and they'll say, that sermon was incredible. And I'll say, praise the Lord. What stood out to you? And they'll describe something that I didn't even say. And I look and I go, that's God multiplying it. I gave God this tiny little sermon and said, I'm sorry, this is all I've got. I wish I had more. And God said, that's enough. And he multiplies it. Let God take whatever you have, whatever you have, including at the very foundational level of who you are, whatever amount of faith you have, give it to God, place it in God and let him work miracles through it. We're never adequate on our own. Whatever appears impossible in your life, Jesus would say, with me, all things are possible. And only those who feel their inadequacy acknowledge their dependence on him. Only those who acknowledge their dependence on him will be used by him. So it's good to look at your inadequacy. It's good to look that you don't have what it takes because then you will say, God, I need you. I'm dependent on you. And only then will he use you. He commands them all to sit down. Groups on the green grass, they sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Verse 41, he takes five loaves and two fish looking up toward heaven. He blessed the food. He prays, he models for his disciples a dependence on the Father through this prayer. He probably prayed something Similar to, blessed art thou, eternal God, our Father, King of the universe, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. According to the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinical teachings from 200 BC to about 200 AD, they would add an additional blessing to be used if someone is in a place like the wilderness where a miracle had been done before. And so Jesus probably added on to that prayer, blessed is he that wrought miracles for our fathers in this place. Again, showing them. And they're going to get this, by the way. John 6, the crowds get, this is better than Moses. Moses gave us manna, and you can give us bread. This is amazing. And so Jesus is showing them he is the true and better Moses. He takes the fish and the loaves, and he breaks them. My Bible says he kept giving them to the disciples. That's a very good translation. The word, some of your translations might say, he gave them to his disciples. It's in the present tense. He kept on giving. So it seems like he takes a cracker, he takes that biscuit and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples and then he breaks the other piece and he gives it to his disciples and he breaks the piece and breaks the piece and breaks the piece and just keeps breaking and this is one of those passages where I, I cannot wait to watch this on the DVD library in heaven. What did this look like? Which of the disciples said, time out, what is happening right now? Where is all this coming from? Did you see more fish that we don't know about? Did you see more crackers that we don't know about? What is going on here? Who, who of the disciples is just saying, of course Jesus can do this. And they're praising the Lord. Which of the disciples is going, 
What is going on here? What's happening? This is one of the most understated acts of creation ever described in the Bible. He breaks it and he gives the disciples and they divide up the the fish and they give to everyone. Jesus is literally creating living death. Like he just bypasses the entire lifespan of a fish. Just here's a dead fish and we'll go to another adult dead fish that really never even had a life. And here you go. Like, how is he doing this? And how amazing would this food have tasted? I'm a big fan of crackers. I like crackers. I enjoy Cheez-Its on occasion. And Cheez-Its are stained with sin, right? They're fallen crackers. And Jesus is making unfallen crackers. How amazing would these crackers taste? This has got to be the best feast that these people have ever eaten. And they eat as much as they want as he's dividing it all up. And verse 42, they ate, they all ate, and they were satisfied. They ate as much as they wanted. In the impossibility of this situation, it's a very easy thing for God to do. It's impossible for man, but it's a very easy thing for God to do. They eat and they're satisfied. Verse 42, John tells us that Philip had tried to figure out exactly how to apportion the right amount to each person with the little food that they had. He had calculated it. He was precise. And Jesus just says, just fill them up. Let them keep eating. Let them keep going. Jesus gives lavishly. Mark it down. He never gives of himself sparingly. Jesus never holds back. He just gives lavishly. And I'm sure that there's somebody in that crowd. It's like, this is an endless buffet. Just keep giving me more and more. Just eat, eat, eat. This is amazing. And they're all looking around at each other going, where did that food come from? And their eyes all fixate on Jesus. He did this. He's a better miracle worker than Moses. He's a better miracle worker than Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42. Elisha has a a hundred hungry men. And he says, I don't know what I'm going to do. And God says, I'll feed them. And he miraculously feeds a hundred men. What Jesus is doing here is dwarfing that miracle. He is showing himself to be a better leader than Moses or Elisha. They eat and they're satisfied. They eat and they're satisfied and they pick up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. This leads to our third and final identity of Jesus being shown in this passage. Number one, Jesus clearly is the compassionate shepherd who cares for his sheep. Number two, Jesus is the true and better Moses who provides for his people. And number three, Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies all who come to him. Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies all who come to him. The crowds make this connection in John 6. They make the connection to Moses. They make the connection to Jesus being the bread of life. Jesus teaches them, I am the bread of life. 
They get it. They understand. The miracle in the Old Testament was manna coming down from the Father. The miracle here isn't the physical bread itself, though that is miraculous. The real miracle here is that the Father has sent Jesus, who is the bread of life, to satisfy us spiritually in ways that nothing and no one ever could. Verse 43, they pick up 12 full baskets, so they're satisfied. They have leftovers. And they pick up 12 full baskets. The Greek word for basket, there's two kinds of baskets. In fact, we're going to get to the other kind of basket with the feeding of the 4,000 in a few chapters here. And that word for basket in the feeding of the 4,000 is a massive basket that a person could get into. It's the same word that's used when Paul is lowered down in Jerusalem off of the walls in the basket. That's the word for the feeding of the 4,000. Different word for feeding the 5,000. The word for the feeding of the 5,000 is a small little, basically like a lunchbox. A little tiny small basket. Many people would just even carry it with them constantly, just over their shoulder so that they could pick up food. They could make sure they're carrying food with them. So it's a smaller basket. And the reason why this is so amazing to me is because Jesus is able to feed the thousands of people in this crowd with more than enough food to satisfy them. They're all satisfied. And then 12 lunch boxes of leftovers. Perfectly fitting 12 lunch boxes of leftovers. So everyone's eaten their full. They're good to go. And he has 12 baskets left over. So the feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle of perfect provision. The leftovers are precise. Nothing is wasted. There's just the right amount for each disciple to have a leftover meal or two in their lunchbox. I love this because I think, do you ever have the feeling that God works powerfully and miraculously in the life of others around you, but not in your life? And you feel like, God, I want to see Miracle working power on display. I want to see you work in my life. Perhaps it's because you are looking for large displays of God's power, which he still does, and he could do that in your life. But you're not looking for perfect provision, a precise miracle. You're praying for God to provide, and the perfect amount of money comes in. Somebody writes you a check. Somebody gives you cash. Somebody brings a meal. The perfect counsel doesn't change your relationship with that individual that you're in a tough, rocky relationship. It's still going to be difficult. It doesn't repair instantly, but you get the perfect counsel that enables you to continue working towards reconciliation. No more, no less, just right. And when we take into account that intimacy, those kinds of miracles in our lives, those kinds of provisions might actually be the greater of the two types of miracles. Instead of God just lavishly showing you this miracle working power, God says, I'm going to meet the exact need that you have with perfect provision. That's what he does here. He knows your need And he will meet it perfectly in his perfect timing. 
Verse 44, there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. 5,000 men, there are two specific words that you can use in Greek to say man or men. You can use a word that means mankind or people. Or you can use a word that specifically means males. That's the word here. This is specifically males. So there are 5,000 males, specifically meaning not including women and children. Matthew 14, 21 says that women and children weren't included in that number of 5,000. So if you were to add one woman for every guy, so now we're up to 10,000. If you were to add a couple of kids to each couple that's there, you're at you know, 20,000. This is easily a miracle of 20,000, 25,000 people. Jesus feeding 20 to 25,000 people. This is massive. But why mention the men? I think the reason is because we're in Bethsaida. There's a group of zealots who lived in Bethsaida. And I think that those zealots, those 5,000 men, are showing up to watch Jesus and to say, we see this in John chapter 6, we want you to be king. We're going to make you king. There's makings of an uprising in these verses. There's a community of zealots living in Bethsaida, and so I think that many of these men are probably a part of that community. And when they see that Jesus can provide food, they say, we want you to be our king. Give us this food always. And this is where Jesus in John chapter 6 says, you've missed the whole point. The point is not for me to give you bread. The point is for me to be the bread. The point is not for me to give you bread. The point is I am the bread of life. Come to me. And this is why we say a lot with the gospel of Mark. That Mark is proving Jesus is king. But he's not the kind of king that people were expecting. They were expecting a different kind of king. And Jesus is going to say in John 6, if you don't come to me for just me and not what I have to offer, then you can't have me at all. But to all who would come to him, turn there actually, turn to John chapter 6. Listen to the words of Jesus. I love this beautiful, open invitation of the bread of life. Verse 35, John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus says, this is the crowd. The crowd that clearly is misunderstanding Jesus. Clearly wants something from Jesus that he's not come to offer. And yet Jesus still gives them this beautiful invitation. John chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. That helps define, by the way, what belief, saving belief is. Saving belief is a coming to Jesus for satisfaction, seeing that he is the bread of life without which I will die. And I want him, and I want to be satisfied in him. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. So Jesus says, by his actions, by his teaching, and by the amazing words that Mark is using in this account. Jesus is our compassionate shepherd who cares for his sheep. He is the true and better Moses 
who provides for his people. And he himself is the bread of life who comes to satisfy anyone. It's open to everyone who would trust in him. Trust in him. Come to him. This miracle is all about revealing the identity of Jesus. That's why it's in all the four Gospels. It's so clearly revealing the identity of Jesus. They wanted a revolutionary. They wanted a king. And Jesus is saying, that's not who I am. He's not just being a shepherd. He's showing himself to be the greatest shepherd there is. He's not just providing bread. He's showing himself to be the bread of life. He's not just a good teacher or a miracle worker. He is God. And he hasn't come to just give physical bread. This miracle is a foreshadowing of a greater miracle where Jesus is going to give us himself. Remember, John tells us that this is happening during the Passover. Jesus is going to take the bread and he's going to bless it. And he's going to break it. And he's going to give it in the feeding of the 5,000. And just about a year and a half later, it's about a year later, he is going to do the exact same thing in the upper room with his disciples where he's going to take bread, he's going to bless it, he's going to break it, and he's going to give it to his disciples. And there he's going to say, this is my body. Jesus is saying, I am the meal that never stops. I am grace that has no limits. I am love that has no bounds. But there's a warning in these verses. And the warning is it is so possible to get excited about a Jesus who is not the real Jesus. It's so possible to get caught up in this idea of I want to follow Jesus, but he's not the real Jesus. They want to follow Jesus, but he's the Jesus of their imagination, which is a political ruler. And he says, that's not who I am. So I believe that Jesus would ask our hearts this morning, why, if you follow him, why do you follow him? Why do you follow him? Who do you believe him to be? Do you follow him for him? Or do you, like the crowd, say, we'll follow you because you give us bread. We don't really care about you. Just give us bread. We want the bread. And if you can give it to us, we'll follow you. They just see full bellies in a Roman defeat. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to satisfy you. I'm here to satisfy your soul. I'm, I'm here to give you everlasting life. And they're going to say, thank you very much. We don't want your things. We don't want you. We want your things. We want the bread. That's not why Jesus has come, though. Jesus has come not to give bread, but to be bread, to be our satisfaction. The people ate. And after eating, they thought, Jesus is really useful to us. Their appetites hadn't changed. They didn't have new affections. They just looked at Jesus to fulfill their old affections. That's the essence of the prosperity gospel, right? The essence of the prosperity gospel is I'm just going to use Jesus to get what I really want. I want health, wealth, prosperity. And if I can get Jesus to get that to me, then I'll follow him. But I don't follow him for him. I want to use him. That's the danger in these verses. Prosperity gospel doesn't require a new birth, doesn't require new desires, new affections. To follow Jesus because you love Jesus, that requires a, a new heart. Jonathan Edwards used to describe nominal Christians as people who find Jesus useful to get things that their unregenerate hearts want. And a true Christian is one who finds Jesus beautiful for who he is 
in himself. And who is he? As Mark has given to us so beautifully, so powerfully, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the true and better Moses. He's the bread of life. He is God, very God, and he alone is our satisfaction. So come to him. Don't find your satisfaction in sin. Don't find your satisfaction in other things. Don't find your satisfaction in the gifts that God has given, good gifts that he's given. The good things that God has given to us to enjoy make terrible gods. Don't serve them. Don't worship them. Don't find your ultimate satisfaction in them. Go to Jesus alone. Spurgeon says, come then, weary, hungry sinner. You have nothing to do but to take Christ. Open your mouth and receive the food. Faith to receive What Christ provides is all that is needed. So receive him today. Be satisfied in him alone today. Father, thank you so much for your word that is so powerful, so encouraging, so comforting, and so points us to Jesus as our soul satisfaction. God, we so often, even as we're studying In our small groups this semester, we so often try to find things in this life to satisfy us. We try to take matters into our own hands to find satisfaction like Abraham and Sarah did this last week. God, we are so needy. We're beggars. And we know that we need satisfaction. And we know that it can only be found in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would graciously show us him today through your word. Now, as we sing, confirm these truths to our hearts such that we would say, Christ alone is my satisfaction. He alone is my hope. He alone is my comfort, my strength. And he alone is my greatest treasure. Father, make that so in our hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.